how significant your grace and mercy are. We need all the help we can get. And we recognize our weaknesses, our frailties, our lostness. Thank you so much for the substitutionary death of Christ. And how even while we were yet sinners, you loved us. And you sent your only Son to fulfill your great plan of salvation that by grace through faith in Christ alone we could enter into full standing. Adopted into your family with full privilege after being lost and wandering orphans. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news. Thank you that there is hope. And then thank you for the ongoing work in our lives, empowered by the resurrection. This working of sanctification and, and in our justification that we're able to grow in grace. And to grow in, in holiness and in godliness, conforming to the image of Christ. And then, Father, would you just encourage us now from your word as we continue to consider what it means to be your disciples, learners, followers, those who are seeking after you. And I just pray that this would be a profitable time and even the preaching of the word would prepare our hearts for the communion table as we reflect upon our great salvation in Christ. It's in his name that we gathered. It's in his name that we've sung. It's in his name that we preach, and it's his name we preach. And it's in his name that we pray. The name above all names, the Lion of Judah, the soon and coming King, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We are back in Matthew's Gospel. Before you turn there, though, would you turn with me to that New Testament book called Acts. A-C-T-S. The Acts Actions of the Apostles. We have recorded there just some incredible stories and testimonies. And I want you to turn to Acts chapter 21, where we have an incident in the life of the Apostle Paul. This great preacher of the gospel. And I want you to capture it in the theater of your mind, and your imagination. And just imagine uh, the emotion of it, the reality of it. And then I want you to ask yourself if you can say what the Apostle Paul said in this particular instance. This occurred late in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So he is... Um, Somewhat of an aging apostle. He has worked hard. He is beat up. He's gathered with a group of beloved believers in Capernaum. He's on his way to Jerusalem and will end up in Rome. We've read the end of the story and we know that he's going to lose his head for the gospel there. They were anticipating that it would not go well for him. But Paul felt compelled of the Holy Spirit and led of the Spirit to take this journey and to bear testimony of Christ no matter the cost. And in fact, if you haven't read the last five or six chapters of the book of Acts lately, I would encourage you to do that. It reads like a novel almost. And it's a great story of his travels. It includes a, a shipwreck, snake bites. It's pretty neat. It's quite a story. And the Apostle Paul's testimony comes through as he witnesses before kings and princes there and governors. It's just very encouraging. So the end of the story of Paul's life is being set up. And one day, as the believers are gathered, and just imagine being there, 
Uh, Acts chapter 21, we know from verse 8 that they're in Caesarea and that they're in the house of Philip the evangelist. And it says in verse 10 that while they were there, staying there for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now at this time in the church, um, the scripture was not completed. They did not have the New Testament in writing. They had much of the Old Testament. But the gift of prophecy was alive and well in the church at this time. And God used people to speak forth His truths and this spiritual gift of prophecy. If you look in verse 9, you see that Philip had four unmarried daughters that were prophesying there. And um, it's kind of interesting. It's basically all it says about them. And then this guy, Agabus, a man of God, who could speak forth and proclaim the truths of God before the church and give God give God's word to the people, comes forward. So we're gathered. The Apostle Paul, perhaps, is seated on a stool. They are there for many days. I know that they're singing together. They're praying together. They're breaking bread together. They're encouraging one another. Wherever the Apostle Paul went, he was teaching the doctrines of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was teaching about the return of Christ. He was teaching about the doctrines of the local church. He was teaching about the practical aspect of of living the Christian life. The kinds of teaching that we would find in the last couple chapters of Colossians and Ephesians. Just that practical, doctrinally based, based Christian living. And so there's Paul. He's no doubt a very unimpressive looking man. We kind of pick up on that. We don't know exactly what he looked at, looked like, maybe going bald. Some people think that he was humped over and kind of a little man. Some people think that by this time in his life, he was significantly disfigured because of all the times he had been beaten and stoned with rocks and bricks and left for dead on the community trash heap. And this guy had lived it. And it was unbelievable. And there he is, and they loved him. They loved the Apostle Paul. And he's sitting there teaching. The congregation is gathered. you got to just kind of picture this. And then old Agabus. Now that, that's a name that I would like to see somebody name their little boy here. Agabus. I think that's a great name. You could call him Aggie, or you could call him Bussy, or Agabus, or I don't know. But Agabus, he was a man of God. It's a good name. I don't know what it means, but it's a good name. And Agabus, it says, verse 10, came down from Judea. Acts 21, 11 now. And coming to us, now picture this. And coming to us, this is Luke, no doubt, recording this. He took Paul's belt, and he bound his own feet and his hands And he said, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And what a moment. Paul's teaching and this guy gets up out of the audience. He walks forward. Paul evidently had some kind of an overcoat on or an outer garment. And he had it wrapped with some kind of a maybe a fabric or leather or corded belt. It evidently had a little bit of length to it. And Agabus comes up. He he evidently doesn't even explain what he's doing. He takes the belt off of Paul's waist, loosely there wrapped, holding his outer coat, no doubt. Or maybe it was just through the loops and Paul had his coat open. He pulls the belt, takes it out, and he bends over and he binds his own feet together. And I don't know if he's sitting down in front of everybody or if he's seated on a chair, but he wraps the belt around his ankles, brings it up, and then wraps it around his arms, and then he makes this prophecy. 
And he says, I'm telling you that the one who owns this belt, when he gets to Jerusalem, this is what the Gentiles are going to do to him. They're going to bind him. Now notice what happens. At the hands of the Gentiles, he is going to be bound up. And when we heard this, verse 12, we and the people, so some of the disciples that were there and the people, the congregation, we urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Paul, don't do this. Paul, don't go down there. They're going to hurt you. They're going to bind you up. They're going to they're capture you. Don't do it. Go another direction. Take the easy way out, Paul. Come on, man. Why would you do that? And notice what the Apostle Paul says. When we heard this, verse 12, we and the people were urged, we urged him there not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, what are you doing? He's kind of like, hey, 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 what are you doing weeping like this? You're breaking my heart. Don't weep in front of me. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And as he said in Philippians, and indeed it's what ultimately happened, I am ready. I've fought the fight. I've lived it. I've run the race. And now, like a drink offering, I'm pouring myself out, never to be recaptured in the bottle again, given over completely. And he said, and I said this to Marika and Willem this morning on the phone, that whether by life or by death, Paul said in Philippians, whether by life or by death, that Jesus Christ would be praised and glorified. Why are you doing this to me? Stop crying. Don't you understand? I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but to die in Jerusalem. I wonder if that's our testimony today. I don't know about you, but I really like um, being comfortable. And I don't like people attacking me. And I wouldn't like having my hands and my legs bound up. Ultimately, the Apostle Paul laid his head down and they whacked off his head, tradition tells us. All because he was a disciple of Jesus Christ. And the master said that if they called me Beelzebul, what will they call you? The student is not above his master. The servant, the student is not above his teacher and the servant is not above his master. If they treated me and you identify with me like this, then they're going to treat you like this. And our task today is to prepare ourselves based upon the prophetic warning of our Lord Jesus Christ, that if you are a disciple of Jesus, you are a follower after Christ, that ultimately He warns us. We're in Matthew 10 now, continuing through the Gospel of Matthew. I ask you to turn there. I warn you that these words are hard words. This is part of what we would call the hard teachings of Jesus. And in fact... When we read them, I think that you'll be able to relate to what my mind does. I read these words from our Lord Jesus that Matthew recorded for us. 
And remember, we don't have time to go back and catch up and review. You can reread Matthew 10. But remember, we've taken a break from the marvelous works, the healings and the miracles that Matthew recorded. And we're now in a teaching stretch in Matthew. And in chapter 10, our Lord is specifically teaching the disciples about what it's going to be like for them to go out. And then he sent them out in pairs. They came back. Not all of this was fulfilled in that early first short-term missions trip. And in fact, we've emphasized the fact that this passage has a telescopic look to it. That is that as our Lord teaches, He begins to to imply and the language begins to change in the personal pronouns to you, to whoever follows after me. And it's a long-term view that when we're disciples of Christ and through the centuries, history has borne out that what Jesus said is absolutely true. That if you're going to identify with me, there's a price to be paid. And our Lord is teaching on discipleship. And we get to this section and we just work our way through um, books of the Bible here. And that's what we've been doing. We get to this section and we have this passage. And like me, I think you'll say, why did Jesus say that? That is just strange. What does he mean? Why did he say that? Let's read our text. And uh, then we want to go back through the text, one verse at a time, and, and try to mark out what Jesus is saying here and clarify in our minds with seven statements that would help us understand this hard teaching of Christ. So remember, we're jumping right into the middle of a lecture. Our Lord is teaching the disciples, and we haven't caught up again. We're just jumping in. Verse 34 is where we left off of Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Why did he say that? What does that mean? For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Why, Why does he say this? Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Are you kidding me? And whoever, verse 38, does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever, notice the pronoun, whoever, 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 that's us. Are you a follower of Christ? I'm a follower of Christ. You a disciple? I'm a disciple. I want to follow Jesus. I want to identify with Jesus. Then whoever would follow me, let him take up his cross. Because if he does not, he's not worthy of me. Whoever, verse 39, finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Why did Jesus say this? I think it's very difficult, don't you? It almost seems opposite and contrary to the loving nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he speaks up and he's instructing them and says, Now you need to get ready. And we're in the context of the passage, remember. We're not just isolating these verses, but they fit in with the warning and the prophetic warning of the entire passage. That you're going to be hated for my namesake. You're going to be accused and abused for my namesake. And furthermore, just know this. I didn't come to bring peace on earth. Well, I thought he was the Prince of Peace. I thought he did come to bring peace. What is he talking about? 
Before we have these seven statements, each drawing from a verse that help us understand these hard statements, let's define our language this morning. I'm going to use the word gospel over and over. I'm doing it to simplify our statements. Now, technically, you could argue that the definition of the gospel is simply good news. All right, that's what gospel means, good news. If you wanted to define the gospel down, you could look at a passage like 1 Corinthians 15, for example. That's the great resurrection passage, 1 Corinthians 15. And in the first six verses of 1 Corinthians uh, 15, Paul, writing to the Corinthian believers, defines the gospel as this. The gospel is that Jesus came, went to the cross, took our sins upon himself, paid the penalty for our sins, was buried, then rose again the third day. Always add this phrase, according to the scripture. The idea is, because the scripture said it, it had to happen. It could not happen according to the scriptures, and then he ascended back into heaven. And that is the gospel in a nutshell. It's the good news. It is that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. It is that your relationship broken with God, a holy God who cannot look at sin, way back in the garden, was broken. And it is ultimately restored in the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ at the cross. It is not by any religious deeds. You can't put enough money in the offering plate to impress God. He doesn't need you, but He loves you. And so He does for you what you can't do for yourself. He he makes a way. It's a narrow way. And the more we learn about Jesus, the more narrow we find out that it is. And that it's a narrow gate. Few there be that find it. No, we'd much rather rely upon our good works outweighing our bad works. And we think we can talk our way into the pearly gates. That's nonsense. The only way you can get right with God is at the foot of the cross. And in broken humility, that's the Beatitudes where we've already been in Matthew. In brokenness and in humility, admit your neediness. I am a sinner. And I need lifted out of my miry pit. And Jesus did it for us. He took our sin upon himself as though he had sinned them. It's it's the same as if all of the things that... You can actually revisit some of those moments in your mind. Don't do that right now. But if you wanted to, you could. That Jesus took that on himself. And it's as though he did the sin in the eyes of a holy God. And he took responsibility for that sin. And he is accountable for that sin. And it's as though God killed him for that sin. So that you could come to the cross and just admit that I am that sinner. And he takes your sin upon himself. Then He gives you His righteousness so that you can go in front of a holy God as though you kept all the Ten Commandments like Jesus did. As though you were perfect and holy like Jesus was. And God looks at you and sees the righteousness of Christ in you. That's most remarkable. And it's a free gift. That is the gospel in its essence. That you can be saved By putting your faith and trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And your sin is forgiven. And that's why we rejoice and reflect upon the cup and the bread at communion time. That His body was broken for me. And His blood was shed for me. And I didn't deserve it. And that's amazing grace. Amazing grace. And my chains are gone. And I've been set free. And I've been adopted into the family. And I now, by His grace, live in Christ. And I'm a follower of Christ. In fact, I want to be a disciple of Christ. A learner. 
a follower. And so this morning, as we quickly go through this passage, as I make these statements, they all start with the word, the gospel. And what I mean is what I've been talking about, the message of hope in Christ. But I also wanted to capture the very teaching of Christ. This message of repentance, this message of salvation, this message of the cross, the teachings of Christ... I'm going to use the word gospel to cover all of that this morning on our point. So when I say the gospel, I mean everything Jesus spoke for us and called for us and the good news that is wrapped up in Christ and all of his teachings. So why did Jesus say what he said? Why did he say it? Well, let's see if we can break it down. Notice that he says, verse 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. The first thing I want you to see is, number one, that the gospel is not driven politically. So we have to understand, what does he mean? Speaking to this audience, the disciples then, in the, in the culture of that day, I haven't come to bring peace. You see, you need to understand that his listeners were longing for Messiah to come and set them free Like David, King David, their forefather, and bring back the glory years of Israel and free us from Roman rule. And so they knew their Old Testament prophesied for a Messiah and they're longing for Messiah to come and they want to identify Messiah and they want him to set up a throne and 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 a palace And they want to rule and reign with him. And they want to straighten out the mess. And they're sick and tired of their country. And they're sick and tired of the political system they're under. And they're sick and tired of what's happening to their society and culture. And we need Messiah to come and bring peace and get rid of these Romans. And they could look right up the street. And there were Roman soldiers with their arms on the hilt of their swords as they stood around. And there was a a presence of power in, in Israel at this time of Rome. And the first thing Jesus wants to clear up with them. So you're going to follow me. You're going to be my disciple. They're going to identify with me. You're going to take on the identity of Christ. And the first thing I want you to know is that the gospel is not a politically driven gospel. It is not driven politically. I did not come to bring peace. And I would say that the the testimony of all of history shows with the world wars and assassinations of kings and rulers and leaders that peace has not come to the earth yet. Politically speaking. So Jesus is talking about another kind of peace that he's going to bring. But the first thing we need to understand is he's teaching them. I have not come to set up a kingdom and rule politically. Their expectation and longing was for Messiah to come and purge them of Rome and restore the glory days of King David. And he said, I'm not that kind of king. I'm not bringing that kind of peace. Remember in King David's time, after his conquest, there's a testimony in the historical books of the Old Testament that says, and there was peace in the land. That's what they wanted. Nope. Second thing we need to see is that not only have I not come to bring peace on earth, but I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, wait a minute. This is crazy. This sounds like jihad. This isn't Christianity. This is Islam. This is something else. This isn't us. What is Jesus saying here? Ah, don't fear. Not only is the gospel not driven politically, it is also not driven militarily. Jesus is not setting up an earthly army. Jesus is not passing out literal swords. There's there's lots of evidence that Jesus cried out against that. His is a gospel of peace, but... 
What about this sword? We know, for example, when on the eve of his resur- on the eve of his crucifixion, that when Judas came and betrayed Jesus there, where he had been praying with the disciples in the garden, and this mob comes up, and Judas kisses him on the cheek, and remember Peter, he's big man Peter, and he had said, "Lord, it's only over my dead body they're going to get you." And I figure Peter is a pretty big, strong, tough guy. He was a fisherman, not a swordsman, but he had a sword. And remember in the story there, he starts flailing his sword. And the servant there of Caiaphas, or one of the guys, he sees the sword coming and ducks just in time. And Peter clanks it off the side of his skull and shears his ear off. And his ear goes flipping over there and falls in the dirt. And what does Jesus say? Jesus said, that's the signal, boys, get him! Let's go, draw the sword! Put him down, boys! Over our dead body! You don't hear Jesus talk like that. Jesus, what you actually get out of the passage is Jesus like going, Peter, put your sword away. What are you doing? And then I always picture it as I say often, he goes over and Jesus picks up the ear off the ground. It's the most incredible moment. Blows the dirt off, sticks it back on the guy's head and like it's never cut off. And they had the audacity to still put ropes on him and carry him away. Woo! You think very highly of yourself when you're messing with the master of the universe like that. But it was all his plan, wasn't it? Now, Jesus didn't call for a sword or a military, but we do see from these, first of all, the gospel is not driven politically. The gospel is not driven militarily, but it is a dangerous gospel. What is Jesus talking about? I think Jesus is talking about the fact that when I come, and because I have come, blood flows. I think the sword clearly represents the threat of death and of physical harm. The sword clearly threatens of these things. And the gospel brings that on. It's not that the gospel instigates bloodshed. But the gospel results in bloodshed. Because he came, the animosity is such towards Christ that they hate him and so they will kill him. What is it about the gospel that causes that? Well, it it is a disruptive gospel. People do not like to be told that they're sinners. People do not like to be told that there's only one way to heaven and they're not on it. People do not like to be told that they have to humble themselves. People do not like to be told that they stand on the threshold of judgment for all of eternity apart from faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And so they rebel against it. It's a powerful reality. So Jesus is not calling for a military to rise up. And I know some of you guys are disappointed. And you got your safe packed. And it's loaded. And you're ready for bear. And you finally found your verse this morning. I have not come to bring peace on earth. But I have come to bring a sword. Let's go. No, no, no. A thousand times no. May Jesus' disciples not be known for their sharpshooting rifles when it comes to the cause of the gospel. So don't misunderstood, but know that it is a dangerous gospel. 
Thirdly, I want you to see that the gospel will polarize relationally. Look what he says. I have come to bring, I have not come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to, uh, to bring peace but a sword. Verse 35 then, number three. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. In other words, this gospel, my message, being a disciple of Jesus Christ often results in, in relational disruption, it is a divisive gospel. It is a divisive gospel. Not only is it a dangerous gospel, it'll get somebody swinging a sword at you, but it is a divisive gospel. I think that we have testimonies in this very room that would bear witness to that. Kind of like my dad's testimony. 16 years old just a punk in the north woods of Wisconsin, big family, coming out of the Depression in the 30s, rough north woods of Wisconsin, picking rocks, sawing wood, using teams of horses. I used to love to sit on his lap and hear the stories of back when he was a boy on Grandpa's farm. And one day, a Pentecostal traveling preacher came through those woods and held some meetings, and my dad recognized his sinfulness. And he accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior, and he became a follower of Christ. His brother Harold was with him, and Harold and Eugene got saved. Out of all those guys, they had brothers and sisters, and my grandfather was a very rough man. They're working the farm there, and they began to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with their family. And one day, my grandmother, who would not be known for this, lost her temper and went upstairs and got a little suitcase, probably the only suitcase the family owned, and brought it down the steps to the kitchen and set it down. And he said, if you boys keep talking about Jesus like that, get your stuff in that suitcase and leave this farm. A mother to her children? What is that all about? It's a divisive gospel. Some of you know what it is to be married to a man who mocks you for coming to church. The Apostle Paul referenced that issue in 1 Corinthians 7. People in Corinth, a very pagan, rough city, were getting saved. The gospel was alive and well, and the church was growing, and people were being saved. But a husband would come home, and he would be saved, and his wife wasn't saved, or a wife would get saved, and the husband wasn't following Christ. And it's like, what are you doing? I can't believe you're doing this. Choose Jesus or choose me. It's a divisive gospel. That's what Jesus means. You're going to follow me you got to know that the gospel will polarize relationally. It's a dangerous gospel. It's a divisive gospel. The fourth thing I want you to see is that the gospel will bring a cost personally. Look what it says. We're in verse 36. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Many Bible students, when they read that, think that it is possible that he's referencing the men there, that the very disciples following Jesus had enemies in their own household who were against them. But they had left their homes to follow Jesus, these men had. And that's a testimony through the centuries of a young man or a young woman, parents, people in the household, uncles and aunts who can't stand part of the family because they're followers of Christ and they become almost like their worst enemies. So it will cost you personally some of these most meaningful relationships. Fifthly, I want you to see that the gospel calls us to love Christ unequivocally. The gospel calls us to love Christ unequivocally. Let's look at verse 37. 
Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I think of a fine young man that comes to church in the first service, Neil Toothman, sitting back here this morning. And last week they had their very first baby. We have some baby announcements in the bulletin. And Neil is just a young man out of college, baseball player at Shepherd, in law enforcement. And I can imagine that Neil understands what some of you papas understand out there, that there is a love that you understand at a whole new level when you hold that baby in your arms. And Neil's a tough guy. And Jesus says, you've got to love me more than you love this baby. What is that? Why does Jesus say that? It's a loyalty. It's a fidelity. It is a commitment. It doesn't mean don't love that baby, but it means that as much as you love that baby, your love for me is to, to even be greater. The gospel calls us to love Christ unequivocally. Unequivocally means leaving no doubt. Unequivocal means it is absolutely clear. No doubt. Is that my testimony? There is no doubt that I love Jesus more than my wife or my son. Oh. Sixthly, the gospel calls us to follow Christ sacrificially. The gospel calls us to follow Christ sacrificially. Look what it says in verse 38. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now you need to understand what he's talking about here. This is a demanding gospel. It makes demands on us. And the idea here is not when I take up my cross. We use that as a figure of speech, I think. We'll say, um, well, in, in my family, we got bad hips and I got a bad hip and I've been limping for 13 years and it's just a cross I have to bear. That's not what we're talking about. And it's like, um, you know, I got this professor in my college class and he's just giving me grief, and I, I'm not going to graduate with honors because of this one pr- professor, but it's partly because of my faith, and I'll just have to bear that cross. It's getting closer, but that's really not what it is. It's just like a, a bad thing happens to us. We say we've got to bear that cross. Listen, his listeners understood exactly what he was talking about. The idea here in this culture under Roman rule was that if someone had been condemned to death and had been given a sentence to be killed... And the death penalty was given, the Romans used a cross for capital punishment. And one of the things they would do to humiliate and make a public demonstration out of the criminal is they would put the cross together and put the cross on him and make him carry it through the street from where they held court up to the outside, outside of town, like what Jesus did. You carry that cross. And the disciples under the Lord's Tutelage at this point understood exactly what he meant. That if take up a cross meant to identify the fact that I am going to die. And I'm going to identify with Christ even if it means I'm going to die. Are you there? What does Jesus mean? Why did he say this? The first thing we've captured is that we've said, number one, the gospel is not driven politically. Number two, the gospel is not driven militarily. But it is a disruptive gospel and it is a dangerous gospel. When it's presented, it will result 
in the sword swinging. Number three, we recognize that it's going to divide families. And number three, the gospel will polarize relationally. It is a divisive gospel. Fourthly, we said that the gospel will bring a cost personally. Within my own home might be the greatest enemies with animosity towards me because of my faith in Christ. Number five, we said that the gospel calls us to love Christ unequivocally, verse 37. It must absolutely leave no doubt and be absolutely clear that I love Christ. Number six, the gospel calls us to follow Christ even sacrificially. It is a demanding gospel. The idea is there that I must die to self and yield over my rights and go after the treasure in the field that is of ultimate value, the pearl of great price, and I will sell everything I have to have that. I will die to self. I am willing to die. That's what cross-bearing is. It's identifying with the death of Christ in a certain sense. Finally, number seven, let's see what Jesus says. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me, verse 38, is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What does that mean? Number seven, and finally, the gospel only makes sense when viewed eternally. The gospel only makes sense when viewed eternally. Look what it says. Whoever finds his life will lose it. The idea is in the here and now. In this world, you can gain the whole world. But what good will it be if you lose your soul? Jesus said. You can find your life in this life, but it's going to be gone. It's temporary. It doesn't last long. You can wake up on a Sunday morning and end up that night at UVA for the next month getting chemotherapy. And the prognosis is not good. So... You're going to lose everything you have, but viewed eternally, you can give up everything you have in this life, and for my sake, you can then find it. It's a view of eternity. It's Hebrews 11, how they were chewed up by dogs and lions and sawed in half with swords and saws, and they did it because they saw a city whose builder and maker was not man but God, and they looked toward a heavenly city, and it was another agenda they were living for. It reminds me of a story I often reference here. I love these guys. It's a classic story. It should never be forgotten in church history. And it's the Alcamarters in Ecuador in 1956. Five young men, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Roger Yodarian, Ed McCauley, Pete Fleming. And these are from Papua New Guinea. They're off my office wall. They're bamboo bow and arrow, a, a dart uh, arrow that is made by these primitive people. And the Alcas were very similar jungle-dwelling people, very similar tools of war and destruction. Do you know that when you shoot this, and I can't do it or my bamboo string will break, but they're very accurate, but they lob through the air in slow motion. And Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, Roger O'Darian, Ed McCauley, Pete Fleming stood on the shores. A couple of them were standing in the water, in knee-deep water. And out of the weeds came some alcas that they had been making contact with. They had given gifts and they had actually fried hamburgers for them. And they had built a model airplane for them. They had even taken them for an airplane ride, Nate St. Ed. And they were building friendships. Somewhere along the line, in his journal, Nate, uh, Jim Elliott wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's verse 38, 39. He is no fool 
who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And you know, they put the story together after they found the dead bodies floating in the river and buried them in the sand there. They sent in the military after they lost contact with him and all five of the men had been killed. And they were killed with these tools. They had a 38 revolver and they had a 22 rifle. And they could have easily stayed up in their treehouse and picked them off and then got in Nate's plane and got out of there. And there, they know, they talked to the people who killed them. And they were standing there with their hands up, hollering out to them in the little bit of language they had picked up, saying, No! Come to Jesus! It's the gospel! And they watched. They had to. They watched these big old bamboo darts in slow motion, lobbing probably as high as 30 feet in the air and with their hands up. And I imagine they tried to get out of the way, but they rained down on them and they filled their bodies. And there they died, strong young men, athletic young men, capable young men. Disciples of Jesus who went down to the Curé River to let their bodies be poured out for the cause of the gospel. I don't know if I'd do that. I think of a better plan for discipleship. I think we ought to have a big nice clubhouse and golf carts and paint them a certain color or something, you know? We could even wear funny hats and have a handshake or something. We know who we are and if things heat up, man, let's just get out of there. It's not how it works. It's a, it's a destructive gospel. It's a damaging gospel. It's a divisive gospel. It's a gospel that costs. Let's reflect upon that gospel as we bow our heads and uh, let's uh, just pray for a moment. Then we're going to sing a hymn. The men are going to bring the elements. And, and may it be most meaningful for us today to hold the bread and the cup. All believers in Christ are welcome to participate. We will hold the bread and partake together after it's served But let's bow in prayer right now and then we're going to sing a hymn and then partake of the elements before we go. Father, would you give us an understanding of what it means to yield to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Father, give us an understanding of these difficult, hard sayings. Help us to love you more than the most intimate, loving family relationships that we can imagine that our love for you would be that great. Thank you for adopting us into your family. Thank you for the great work of salvation at the cross, whereby your shed blood, we who are so unworthy, can now stand in the presence of a holy God. We have heaven promised and secure. And Father, help us not to latch on to the things of this world where moth and rust corrupt, where thieves break in and steal, but help us to invest in eternity and in your eternal gospel. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who was willing to bear marks on his body for our salvation. May your Holy Spirit teach us these things and grow us in our understanding of discipleship, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.